0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to all who have joined us in church this morning for worship of our triune God. We also extend a special welcome to all visitors who have joined us this morning and to those visitors who are with us remotely via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel and may God be praised and glorified by our worship this morning. Consistory has the following announcements. Classes North will be convened a Lord-willing at 9am Friday, the 28th of April, in the Free Reformed Church of Launceston. Families Stephen and Melinda Wilshire have arrived at their attestation from the Free Reformed Church of Beldivers. We welcome them into our congregation. Families Simon and Lisa Talagani, with four baptised children, have requested their attestation to the Free Reformed Church of Lagana. We wish them the Lord's blessings in their new congregation. A reminder of the wedding service of Margaret Cooper and Keith Vandalia for this coming Saturday 1pm in this church building with Reverend Poppy officiating. The funeral of the brother late Janice Jansen is scheduled for to take place on Wednesday the 29th of March, the Lord willing. The internment will take place in Rockingham Regional Memorial Park at 10am, following by a word of comfort at 1130 again in this church building. Also a reminder for the collection this afternoon is for the needy, following the request from the deacons also for extra funds. This morning the worship service will be led by Reverend Paul, minister of our sister church in Mundijong. And before we commence the worship, let us sing together from Psalm 148 verse 4.
1: Let us rise. We confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord's greeting in the words of hymn 46. the needy seek him he will mercy show then the weak and helpless shall his pity know he will surely save them from oppression's might for their lives are precious in his holy sight who could be more needy weak and helpless than sinners and is that not all of us and then look at God's promise he will surely save them from oppression's might for their lives are precious in his holy sight as God's people, then we listen to his will for our lives. And we remember that as he set us people free from slavery and oppression in the past. So he sets us free from the much greater slavery and oppression to sin and Satan. With that in mind, let us hear these words where God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six, as the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. God is a God who delivers. And as He has done so through Jesus Christ, let us not lose sight of deliverance. Let us remember it in the words of Psalm 49, stanzas 2, 4, and 5. Gracious God we have gathered here together as your people called into your presence called by you the God who delivers you are so different from us you stand so far above us you know all oversee all control all how weak and helpless we are to in comparison to you for you are eternal we are temporal you are creator we are created you are pure we are sinners you are god and we are not And yet you created us for fellowship with you. You call us into a relationship of life and love with you. And therefore again you have called, called us this morning to meet with you in worship. And as we enter into your presence we become so aware of our sins and our shortcomings Your holiness brings to mind our our imperfections and our weaknesses and we feel frustrated. Frustrated at our inability to focus on you, sometimes even for the length of a prayer. Frustrated at our inability to grow in wisdom. Frustrated in our inability to see the true essence of things in our relationships with others. Frustrated by our self-centeredness. Frustrated by our lack of understanding. Frustrated by our inability to discern. Frustrated by our weakness. And Lord, we would continue to be frustrated if these were the only things that we focus on. If that alone was the object of our worship to, to bring to mind these frustrations. But We worship because you have called us to be your children. You have become to us a father through Jesus Christ. Through faith you work within us. You, having regenerated us, also renew us. Having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we are also renewed by the spirit of Christ. And in that renewal there is hope. In that cleansing there is forgiveness. In you, there is eternal blessing. Help us then to share in those blessings. Help us to understand what we have in Christ and to turn to you wholeheartedly, also through the preaching of the word today, to know that we are loved and embraced by you as your people. That we do not need to focus on our frustrations For we know that they are temporal, just like all things are of this world. Help us to embrace Christ and all of his merits. To respond in faith to all of your promises. To be built up through all of your admonitions. To be encouraged through all of your word. We then also turn in faith to our brothers and sisters and we pray for them. We pray for all those struggling in their life or in their walk of faith with you. We pray for those struggling with anxiety. We pray that you would support the downcast and heal the brokenhearted. We pray that we communally and collectively would bring all of our struggles and difficulties and sufferings to you. Our loneliness and our inward focusedness. Our inability to relate well to others around us. Let us bring it before you and grant that you will unite us all with each other and with you in true faith. To that end, bless our worship today. Let us be encouraged and strengthened and above all, let your name be glorified, your son be exalted, your spirit be present among us. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to Luke chapter 22. The gospel according to Luke. Chapter 22, we will read the verses 1 through 53. We're approaching Good Friday, so it's appropriate for us to read this chapter together. Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you As my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter. The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So far, let's sing together Psalm 120. Our text this morning is verse 51 of the passage that we read. But Jesus said no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in less than two weeks it will be Good Friday. We will remember the crucifixion and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our reading this morning narrates some of the events that led up to that day. One thing that you begin to notice when you look at the Gospels is that each of them has its own particular emphasis when it describes these events. Each gospel is selective in the details that it includes and how it presents them. Each gospel gives a slightly different angle on what happened, and when you put these gospels together, you get a three dimensional picture. In this case, all four of the gospels mention one detail that one of the disciples of Jesus tried to defend his master. He drew, out one of, he drew out his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we know from John that the disciple was Peter and the servant's name was Melchus. Melchus would likely have been a slave of the high priest. The, Greek, the same Greek word gets used whether you describe a servant or a slave. There was no real difference between them. So likely he was a slave. But he was a slave who had a lot of responsibility. In this case, probably the high priest's chief slave, therefore probably at the front of the mob and in charge of them. Now, why would Peter have cut off the ear of Melchus? Oh, he was probably going for his head. You can imagine Peter striking down with a sword and Melchus jumps backwards and turns his head, and instead of having his head split in half, Peter just nicks him and slices off an ear. Luke includes most of these details as well, but he includes one detail that you don't find in any other gospel. That is the detail of the ear of this slave being healed. All four of the gospels mention that the ear was cut off, but only this gospel says that it was healed. Well, that's interesting, don't you think? We believe, don't we, that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. So every detail matters, every word matters, the order of the words matter. And we get this detail. Why is it here? There must be a reason for that. Sometimes looking at a detail like that, which is emphasized in one gospel... Can can bring the good news forward in a in an unexpected way. That's our goal today. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this miracle that our Lord Jesus performed, the last miracle before He was arrested. And in looking at this very specific detail, we're going to find the gospel in a new, beautiful and unexpected way. So this morning I may summarise that gospel for you. Do not ignore the last miracle of Jesus. It shows that he is the Savior, and it shows that he is the judge. Now, as we begin to study this passage together, maybe we should first ask the question, why did Peter want to fight in the first place? Had Jesus not told him that he was to love his enemies? And Jesus did, but in verse 36 of our reading, Jesus had also told his disciples that hard times were coming. Remember, he said to them, but now let the one who has the money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So isn't he telling them to arm themselves? And if that is the case, are they then not also to defend themselves and him? Well, that's what the disciples thought. But is that actually what Jesus was telling them? If you don't read this carefully, you might get the impression that that he was saying something along the lines of, well... You did depend on God's providence in miraculous ways the first time that I sent you out. But this time things are going to be different. You're going to have to look out for yourselves. It will be up to you now. And that doesn't really sound like the sort of thing that the Lord Jesus would say, does it? And it wasn't. His point was not that they can no longer depend on God. His point was the first time that he sent them out, they could still count on the goodwill of the people around them. The people to whom they were sent to help them out. They went on their first big missionary journey completely unprepared. The people they encountered were willing to look after them. They were willing to hear the message. But this is later. And now Jesus is going to be numbered among the transgressors. Jesus will be treated like a criminal. Jesus is going to be rejected. His disciples will be guilty by association. They're going to be rejected as well. It's going to be really tough for them. And so they will be spending a lot of time on the road going from one place to another. And the standard equipment when you were traveling back then was a money bag, provisions, and a sword in case you ran into robbers. So Jesus is essentially telling them, well, things are going to be different going forward. You need to be prepared for trouble. You're going to have to spend time on the road. You're not going to be well received. It's going to be difficult for you. Come prepared for trouble. People will know that you belong with me. Since I was numbered with the transgressors, you will be as well. So that's his point. And the disciples missed that point completely. They stopped when he said the word swords. They heard that bit and they thought, excellent, Jesus wants us to be armed. Look, Lord, here are two swords already. Look at how prepared we are. And Jesus puts an end to the conversation. In verse 38, a very abrupt end, he says, um, it is enough. And it's pretty hard to, to um, understand whether he meant that ironically, whether he was irritated or, or what. But um, there, are, there are multiple ways of reading that, that phrase, it is enough is he saying two swords is enough or we've had enough of talking about this or, or maybe a little bit of, of everything he seems in any case to be, to be somewhat amused and possibly irritated um, but in any case there's um, he, they're not on the same wavelength as he is at all but the fact that the conversation ended as it did shows that the point is not resistance there is a time for Christians to fight the government bears the sword to prevent murder as the catechism reminds us so if you're a police officer, if you're in the military uh, if your country is legitimately engaged in war with another or if you need to use um, violence in the carrying out of your duties as as a member of the police force let's say then then you are um, even as a Christian authorized to use the sword so to speak under those circumstances but you do that on behalf of your country there may also be times as Christians when violent self-defense is necessary for us. You men, for instance, you are the head of your household. And if you're married, God has entrusted you with this woman who is your wife. They you were to serve her and to protect her. That means you also protect her from harm and danger. When she's in danger, you protect her. And that means if you're ever in a situation, let's say, where you, you are assaulted... You need to use, and you need to use force to protect her. Then, then it is your God-given responsibility to do so. Not because you hate your enemy, but because you love your wife. Isn't that what you promised in the marriage form? You were to guide, protect, and comfort your wife. Now, not everything will require a forceful or violent response, but there may be situations in your life at some point when. Force will be necessary. The point is that we should not misunderstand what Jesus is saying. The disciples misunderstood him to say that from now on, as his kingdom was expanding, they would need to use force to meet force. They would have to to meet force with force as they carried out their ministry. Jesus is not saying that. But he's also not saying that a Christian may never under any circumstances, engage in the use of force. But as Christians, our our, our default setting should be peace-loving. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. That means everyone. So the default setting for a Christian should always be pacifism. Wherever possible, we should hate war. We should hate violence. We should hate the use of force. We sang from Psalm 20, didn't we? And did you notice, besides maybe struggling a little bit with the lesser known tune, did you notice the last few lines in the second stanza? The psalmist says, I am for peace. I am for peace. This is who I am as a believer. I am for peace. This is what we all should be for peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. His kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't operate according to worldly priorities. It doesn't use worldly measures. Now one question near the end of this passage then is, um, that, that can come to mind for us is what then is the nature of the kingdom of heaven? How is it spread? Jesus says not by violence. That's clear from his response to Peter's actions. He, he doesn't want to be accused by his opponents of being a lawbreaker. But then how is the kingdom of heaven spread? What is the kingdom of heaven about? Well, the kingdom of heaven is a reign of God over the hearts and lives of men. And that is only ever possible when their sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is only ever possible because Christ has paid for those sins. Christ is a Savior. He is willingly paid for those sins with his death on the cross. And that is why he willingly submitted to violence, to those who committed violence against him, even though he had no, done no wrong, even though he was fully capable of Defending himself. Could have called up legions of angels, as it says in one of the other gospels. But he did not do that. He submitted to violence. Maybe your Bible has a heading above this passage that says, Betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Well, that that heading is fine as long as it doesn't give you the impression that Jesus was passive and just let these things happen to him. He is, in fact, in complete control of this situation. You can tell by the way that it's being described. This uh, section here um, called Betrayal and Arrest of Jesus, the, the verses uh, 47 to 53 in, um, in this pulpit Bible here, doesn't even show him being arrested. That doesn't actually get mentioned until the next section. And then it gets mentioned in passing. Verse 54, then they seize him and let him away. But that's not where the focus is. It's, it's really only a one phrase. They seized him. So that's important because it shows us that, that this is not Jesus um, having power taken away from him. He's, he's still in control of the situation. He's about to be arrested. He is arrested, but he's still in control. He rebukes Peter and so prevents further violence from happening. He heals the ear of Melchus. And that shows us that when he is going to be arrested and crucified, that he undergoes this willingly. He is submitting to the will of his Father. And in this particular case, submitting to the will of his Father means submitting to the violence that will be, will be done to him. And he does that because he is the Savior. So from that perspective, you can see how terribly wrong it was of Peter to respond with violence. In fact, by doing so, Peter is damaging the cause of the gospel. He's misrepresenting the kingdom of heaven to the people who have come to arrest Jesus. He has harmed the slave of the high priest. All of these things are sinful. In fact, Peter's action shows that he himself now needs the gospel more than ever at this very moment. Just as much as the man that he has harmed. And we need the gospel just as much as he did. Think think about the last time that you were in a conflict with another person. Think about the last time that you responded to that conflict in a way that was sinful. Did your response show that Christ is your Savior? Was it a response shaped by the gentleness of the one who submitted to violence for the sake of bringing us the gospel? Or did you have to win at all costs? Was your response shaped by the will of God? Or did you impose your unsanctified will on others? You know, you can say whatever you want, but in the end, what Christians really believe about God and his kingdom shows most clearly in how they resolve conflict, or don't resolve it sometimes. We cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus. We cannot ignore the gospel that comes through this miracle as well. See, the miracle is not just that Peter, that that Jesus healed Malchus' ear, but but that his response was so different from Peter's. He responded by submitting to the will of his father. In that case that meant submitting to the violence that was done to him. And he did that to pay for the sins of his people. Also for the sins of Peter. Also for his foolish response in this situation. By healing Melchizedek's ear Jesus is undoing the damage that Peter's sin has caused. Now... We're starting to see the gospel. To understand how deep that runs, we should take a step backwards and talk about slavery for a moment. After all, Melchus was a slave of the high priest. Being a slave was hard. Now we, we should be clear that slavery in Greco-Roman days was not the same as it was um, in, uh, let's say, um, America and much of the Western worlds and world in the 16th through the 17th century. There was a time when um, um, there was a worldwide slave trade going on under very horrible conditions. And um, when we think of slavery, we tend to think of that. Greco-Roman slavery was not like that. A well-educated slave in Greco-Roman days could have a relatively good life. But a slave had no freedom. To be a slave, by definition, means that your freedom is taken away from you. In biblical times there were two ways for, for that to happen. One of them was that your freedom would be taken away through violence, because you were captured and and taken away as a prisoner of war. The other way was to become a slave through poverty. Slavery was not a plan of god not a plan of God for human beings from the beginning. But under Old Testament law, it was possible for an Israelite in any case to sell himself into slavery in order to overcome poverty or perhaps even to pay off a debt but every 50 years it was a year of jubilee that meant that every slave at least once in his lifetime would be able to enjoy freedom again you can read about that in leviticus 25 the verses 39 to 43 the year of jubilee was an opportunity for ordinary relationships to be restored again And that tells us that that God was concerned about the well-being even of slaves, the, the bottom rung of society, the most unimportant people, the most disadvantaged. The year of Jubilee was meant as a way of showing the gospel of liberation, of deliverance, of freedom, even to slaves. They too could and should know that God was a God who restores, who redeems, who heals. The people had to realize that slaves are human beings too who were created By God and valuable in his eyes. Now we don't practice slavery anymore. At least not in the same way. But if you run a business. How do you view your employees? Do you see them as people who are valuable in the eyes of God? Do you and your behavior show the gospel to them? Or do you try to squeeze every last drop of productivity out of them? We say one thing but do another. What about the goods that we buy? Are they made under conditions that promote a a virtual slavery? What's our priority when we go shopping? Are we interested in getting our goods for the lowest possible prices? Is that the only thing that matters to us? Do do we ever think about that? When we buy a t-shirt, a Kmart for four dollars... Or do we ensure that the things that we buy are ethically sourced? Maybe we don't always have the answer, but should we not at least as Christians be asking the question? Our text shows that the comfort and condition of slaves matter to God. Now maybe some of you um, who are more pragmatic read our text this morning and maybe you thought, well, at least Malchus only lost an ear. He got off pretty luckily. He could have been dead. An ear is not that bad, is it? That's actually a secular way of looking at the matter. That's exactly how Caiaphas would have looked at it. That's the sort of thing Caiaphas would have said. He would have been angry because his, his property, the slave, had been damaged. He would have been angry that his honor, in a sense, as Malchus' owner, had been damaged. But he wouldn't care particularly about Malchus himself. And yet Jesus shows that the comfort of slaves matters to God. There are no small wounds to him. There are no small people. Even as Jesus is about to be arrested, he shows that he is more concerned about a slave than about himself. He shows himself to be the true savior. Jesus is showing himself to be the true savior here. Jesus is powerful enough to protect himself, but here his power is working towards a purpose. Jesus wants this slave to see the gospel, this man who has never learned the gospel from Caiaphas. It's hard to tell whether KFS would have kept a year of Jubilee or not. It's possible that, that Melchus was a foreigner instead of a Jew. Melchus doesn't really sound like a Jewish name, but who knows what his life story was. If Melchus was a foreigner instead of a Jew, then the um, regulations of the year of Jubilee didn't really apply. It might not have made a difference anyway. <coughs> but the point is... That slaves too were meant to see the gospel and to experience it. And even foreign slaves were to be treated well in the Old Testament. And Caiaphas, the high priest, now sends his slave to capture Jesus Christ. The true high priest. And that obscures the gospel completely. At this point, Caiaphas, as high priest, has obscured the true gospel. And this is the high priest. This is a man who was meant to, to, to embody the gospel for his people. And by sending his slave to go and capture Jesus, he has obscured the gospel for everyone, including Malchus. Jesus wanted the slave to see the gospel. He wanted the slave to see that God shows undeserved favor to sinners. That's what the gospel is. That God shows undeserved favor to sinners. That's grace. Jesus said that the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Christ God shows undeserved mercy to people like us, who by nature are slaves as well. Slaves to sin, by nature, all of us, by nature. And then there is Jesus, the true high priest. The one who himself became a servant, even a slave, who humbled himself unto death. Philippians 2 says that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, in in this passage, Christ is on his way to the cross. Christ is on his way to hell. And he knows. He knows exactly what is going to happen to him. And yet by performing this miracle of healing, he shows the gospel in that moment to a slave of all people, the lowest of the low. He's revealing himself as the one who heals not just our bodies, but our relationship with and our perception of God. That is why we should not ignore the last miracle of Jesus. So what's the purpose of this miracle? Well, the purpose is not to focus attention on himself. The purpose is to focus attention on the word the same word, the same gospel that he's been preaching all along. Now, maybe uh, some of you have, um, some of you might be aware that there are a lot of extra biblical writings that date from the time before and after the New Testament as well. Um, over in Mundajong we study those in, uh, in one night in, in our class on the Belgian Confession. And um, these writings are called the Apocrypha, the hidden writings, and the Pseudepigrapha, um, the ones that are falsely attributed to other people. Now, most of it is fiction. And most of it is pious fiction. These extra-biblical writings, they were written by people often in someone else's name. So you have, for example, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel according to Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Jesus, and so on. Um, all, of it is, all of it is fiction. Um, it's meant to, meant to make a, a pious statement. To, to, to sort of teach piety, how can you tell the fiction, fictional gospel from the true ones? Well, one of the key places um, is uh, through the use of miracles in these in these fictional gospels the, and uh, these fictional writings and miracles are often um, showy they 're gaudy they like, um, they 're like a bad action movie with tons of explosions. they have a, an explosion and you know, some fake stuff happening. And these, these pseudepigrapha these fake gospels are like that too. Big showy miracles that, that serve no real purpose other than, than to amaze you. And the, the gospels are different. And one of the places where I see that difference in the true gospels is through the use of miracles. The, the true miracle that Jesus did that's described here points us to the gospel. It's not just like a, an explosion in an action movie. It is actually meant to make a point. It points us to the gospel. It shows us that life is meant to be lived in peaceful relationship with God and man. That our sins have damaged that. That Christ has come to restore that. That Christ alone can restore that. No one else could do this. No one else could have done what he did here. Not just because of the miracle of healing this ear, but because of the circumstances, because of the gospel that he's preaching through that. So we cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus. It shows us that he is the savior and it shows us that he is the judge. Now I'm performing this miracle before going to the cross. Christ is showing himself to be the savior of his people but also the judge. This being our, our second point. Now how is this a judgment? First of all this miracle is a judgment over Caiaphas. Caiaphas has obscured the gospel through his actions. Caiaphas has not lived up to his responsibility as a high priest. Caiaphas has rejected the Messiah. He's obscured the gospel for others by sending others, like his slave Malchus, for instance, to capture the Messiah. So in this, in this last miracle, Jesus clearly shows the gospel that Caiaphas has rejected. He's saying this is what true priesthood should be about that within 24 hours, he, the true priest, will be dead. The curtain in the temple will be torn in half. The curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place will be torn in half. And that means that the temple and its sacrifice will no longer be needed. And in one moment, Caiaphas and all that he represents has been rendered irrelevant. His services as high priest will no longer be needed, but he has not been honorably dismissed. Essentially, Caiaphas is deposed. He did not live up to his responsibility as high priest over the nation. Caiaphas was supposed to show the nation what the true gospel looks like. And through this behavior, he did the exact opposite. So this miracle of Jesus shows that he is the judge because by his actions, he shows what Caiaphas did not do. And so he implicitly judges him. And condemns them for his shortcomings. It's a contrast isn't it? Jesus the true high priest doing what Caiaphas did not do. Thereby showing that Caiaphas stands under judgment. The nation of Israel is deposed as well. They are no longer God's exclusive people. They've been part of suppressing the truth for too long. And so this last miracle of Jesus shows them what the gospel is like. And yet, these very people are the same ones who, less than 24 hours later, will be calling for his crucifixion. In Matthew 27, Pilate is about to hand him over, and he washes his hands in front of the crowd. He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And what do they say? They say, His blood be on us and on our children. And that's what happened. 40 years later, the Romans came, and they destroyed Jerusalem and wiped the people off of the map. So they were deposed. Peter thought that he could help the kingdom of God by using the sword. Jesus rebuked him because this is not how the kingdom of God is spread. But there will be a time when there will be a conquest with the sword. Revelation 19 verse 15 through 16 describes Christ riding out for war. It says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he is a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't need Peter's sword to bring that about. There will be a time when there will be worldwide peace. Why? Because there has been a worldwide conquest. Psalm 46 refers to this as well. Be still and know that I am God. As the stillness comes after a total victory. But how many of us really dream about that kind of peace? We want peace, but only for selfish reasons. We want peace in our own lives, in our own families, in our own country, so that we can keep on doing the things we've always done without any interruption. If we're honest with ourselves, that's what we want. But we, we dream too small. The peace that Christ died for is far greater than that. It is nothing less than the undisguised reign of the living God. It's his gracious rule over this world. And it will culminate in his time regardless of our circumstances. Whether they be personal or political. Regardless of whether we're oppressed or not. Regardless of whether we're persecuted or not. It will bring it about in his time. You see, true true peace as far as the Bible is concerned is when all is submitted to God. True peace is when the opposition is silenced. True peace is the undisputed reign of God. And that will happen whether we cooperate with it or not. The day is coming when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why you cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus. This is a call to repentance. It's implied, but it is there. There's still time to repent now. And through this miracle, Jesus is showing this. There's still time for grace. But a time is coming when the preaching of the gospel will end. A time is coming when the miracle of God's grace will be withdrawn. On that day, there will be only worldwide judgment. Malchus experienced some of God's grace in the last miracle of Jesus. He could experience what God is really like, that God is gracious and kind and loving. But did Malchus ever benefit from that? Did he ever repent? He personally experienced the gospel. Who will be his true true master after this? Will it be Caiaphas, or will it be Christ? And that's a question we're left with as well. Who is our true master? Who do we serve? The things that we do, do they reveal or conceal the gospel? The way we handle conflict, does it reveal or conceal the gospel? We cannot ignore that question. We cannot ignore the last miracle of Jesus. Because it calls us to believe. It confronts us with the Christ. And our response to his call eternal consequences. But it also brings us hope because it shows us his immeasurable love, his unlimited determination to set all things right. And he will. He proved it in the last miracle before his death. And he will continue to prove it in the miracle of our life. Amen. To pray together. In um, our prayer this morning, we will remember our brother Wally Tenhaf and um, um, his wife. On Thursday of this past week, our brother Wally Tenhaf had surgery on his brain to remove an aneurysm. While the surgery itself was technically successful, our brother is not doing so well. He's currently in the intensive care unit on a ventilator and is thus far non responsive. They are continuing to monitor him for brain activity. This is a very difficult time for Leonia and the family, and so we continue to commit them and Wally into the care of our Almighty Father. May God give peace and acceptance with whatever He, in His perfect wisdom, has already decided. Let's pray. Our gracious God, You are our deliverer. And we are your servants, bound yet free. And as your servants, we give thanks for the gospel that we heard this morning. Just as Melchus experienced the gospel so many years ago. We give thanks for that gospel. We give thanks that you care. That there are no small people, no small problems to you. We're so grateful for this last miracle of Jesus. Grateful that he is such a savior. Grateful that he was willing to subject himself to violence for our sakes. We're grateful for salvation. And we pray that you would forgive us where we have not reflected this salvation in our lives. Forgive us where we have misrepresented the gospel in our workplace or to our families or maybe even to our spouse by our behavior or our actions, or perhaps our lack of action. Forgive us for the times that we have misrepresented what your kingdom is all about. Forgive us when we try to win at all costs. Forgive us when we imposed our unsanctified will and desires on others and attempted to bend them to our way of doing and seeing things. Lord, it is so easy for us to slip into secular ways of dealing with problems And we are your church. We can and should do better. We pray that you would therefore guide us. As your beloved people. Give us wisdom to live a life that reflects Christ. Let us be peace loving people. For he is the judge. And we pray that we would take that seriously. We pray for those in all branches of law enforcement. We give thanks that there are men and women who are able to serve in this capacity. We give thanks also for those who serve in the military who are people doing difficult things under difficult circumstances so that the rest of us could, could live lives that are free of difficulties in, the, in these regards. We pray that you would continue to show your gospel also to these people And above all, we pray that you would bring about the day when there will be no more war. The day when there will be universal peace. When every knee will bow to Christ and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We give thanks that the Lordship of Christ encourages us during difficulties. That we are, that you are always near us that we are always in your hands, that even death itself is not, does not need to be unknown or frightening to us because Christ has been through it and he is there with us and he is also on the other side of the grave waiting for us. That we belong both in body and soul, both in life and in death to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. That he has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood and has set us free from all the power of the devil. That he also preserves us so that not a hair can fall from our head. That all things work together for our salvation. And therefore we also bring before you brother and sister Wally and Leone. We bring before you the um, grave concerns that the family has over Wally's condition, over his lack of response, over his being hooked up to a ventilator. Father, we, we pray for our brother that if it be a will that you would grant him healing and a full recovery. But if it not be your will, we pray that you would be with Leone and the family and sustain them during this time. And that you would continue to remember all of the promises that you made through baptism to Wally as well. And that he, in whatever capacity he can, is able to remember those promises as well. For our whole life is a response of faith. Help us to respond also to this situation with that faith. Father, as we now also prepare to give our gifts, we pray that you would bless the work of the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. We thank you for the staff, the faculty, and the students We pray that they too could live in harmony, that your spirit would be present among them, that you would keep strife and difficulties far from them and let them focus on training ministers for the gospel, that those who are called can also be sent forth competent and well equipped. We pray that you would hear us, not because we deserve it, but to the honor and glory of your name through Christ alone. Amen. We now have an opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord. After that, let us rise and sing Hymn 70 All Stands Us Together. receive the blessing of the Lord and depart in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.